I don't know if uh, you've hit that place in your Christmas shopping and preparing where you've had to start the list. Do you know the list? The list where you start to go, not your list of what this is what I want. Some of you are like, oh man, that was done in June. Um, I'm talking about the list of the people that you're like, okay, who, who am I buying gifts for? And all of a sudden you start to put that down. It's, I see there's a tension that exists in creating the Christmas list and like a wedding list, like who you're inviting to your wedding. All of a sudden, when you start to list all these people, I think a lot of us go, wait a second, I... I can't afford to get gifts for all these people. I want to do this, but like you start to realize all the levels of relationships that you have. Does anybody's list feel like it could just keep going on? And you're like, I know all these people. I love all these people. I want to do these things. If you were getting married, you'd want to invite everybody. And it's like, <gasps> the truth is we are in so many different types of relationships. Uh, we have friends. We've got teammates, professional relationships, long-distance relationships, neighborhood relationships, online relationships, um, relationships with parents and teacher, teacher and student, and we've got dating, we've got marriage, we've got mentors and small groups and coaching, and if I just say family relationships, that's, uh, that's really a ton of different kinds of relationships. Are you with me? Right? This is, there's so many different types of relationships that we're in and the truth is we don't always get to make decisions on who we're in relationships with. You know, there's sometimes that, that if you have a teacher, you have a boss, and they are replaced midway through your school year or midway through your contract, guess what you can't change? Who that boss is, right? You signed your contract, you're there, you're in school, you're there, but that teacher or that boss that's now in that position, you have no decision over who that is. And so therefore, you just have to endure, right? There are sometimes we do not get to choose who we're in relationships with. But when we talk about making good decisions, I do believe that there are some relationships where we get to decide. We get to decide. And I'm thankful that, that we get to decide and instead of looking at all of those different types of relationships that exist, because we do talk about relationships a lot at Crossbridge, there are two types of relationships that we get into that I think have more impact in our life and choosing well, deciding well, making a good decision in these areas is crucial. And these relationships are friendships and marriages. Our friendships and our marriages, deciding who we're going to surround ourselves with and who we want to spend the rest of our life with, this is something we want to make a good decision in, right? No one's going to willingly go, I hope that I pick the worst friends and, and life partner ever. I hope they ruin my life. No, no one wants this, right? These are huge decisions. They impact us now. They will impact us for the rest of our lives. And I'm going to tell you something. You ready for this? You will probably not hear anything new today. I know you're like, what? You, if you have been coming to Crossbridge and been a part of our community, you will likely not hear anything new today when we talk about these things because we talk about them all the time at Crossbridge. But we talk about them all the time because Jesus talks about them all the time. And we're going to look at these two um, relationships, friendships and marriage, and we're going to kind of start at a place today where we look at what's in common. What do we have to, that's going to set up good decisions and then the truth is, we're going to look, they're just separate. And we'll look at them separately really quick to just kind of get into it a little bit. And if there's something in when we look at friendships or look at marriage that you go, oh, 
I, I wish, uh, Jimmy, could you just give me a little more there? Jump online, go into our sermon archives, and there are a ton of messages on relationships that you can go back to and say, I want to lock into this a little bit more. And then at the end, we'll pull it all back together and say, how do we do this well and make good decisions around relationships? Sound good? All right. Now, when it comes to making good decisions in relationships, we need to remember that God has created each and every one of us to be in relationships. He never intended for any of us to live life alone. Okay, so if you're like that solo, uh, I just like doing it by myself, this is not God's intention for any of us. We are designed to be in community because God himself always lives in community with himself. And the tension that we're going to carry when it comes to the relationships that we have is well, it's actually the same tension that's with every decision that we make. It's that usually when it comes to making a decision, we put what we want and what makes us happy individually at the center of our decision-making process. And when we put what we want and what makes us happy at the center, I will tell you, it's never going to make for the best decision. Which is why I, every week, we keep going back to what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. In chapter, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he just so clearly says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He's talking about God, but seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. No matter what relationship we are looking at today, this is our starting place. This is the foundation that we all stand on and we start from. And when it comes to making our decisions on who we surround ourselves with, our eyes are not on the people that are around us. They need to be focused on God. Are you with me? Our relationship with Jesus is the most important relationship and decision that we have to make and start with. When this is off, when we are not in connection with Jesus, there is no guarantee that our decisions with anyone will be good ones. So whether it's marriages or it's friendships, our relationship with God is more important than our relationship with people. Our relationship with God is more important than our relationship with people. And yes, I mean exactly what I said there. I think that our relationship with God is the most important relationship we have. This is the most important relational decision that we will ever make in our entire life. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? That's the question. You have to answer that for yourself because every one of us are put into a position where it's like, oh, what about this? What about this? You, you, I get all the people around you. But do you know Jesus? Because if you don't know Jesus, if you are not in a relationship with Jesus, I'm telling you the decisions of who you put around you, it could be good, it could be fine, but it will never be as full as it could be because Christ has called us to himself first. Do you believe that he is who he says he is? Do you believe that he is the son of God? Do you believe that he was born from a virgin? Do you believe that he lived a perfect life, that he sacrificed his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be in relationship with God? Do you believe that he ascended and he sits at the right hand of God, that he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and shared with us the same spirit that was in him so that we could live an empowered life? You see, if we don't have our eyes fixed on God to begin with, every other relationship that we are in will suffer. This is our starting place. This is why I will say our relationship with God directly impacts our relationship with people. 
I know for me that when I get out of rhythm with God, I tend to get out of rhythm with people. I think this is why Jesus starts us at a place of saying, seek first God's kingdom and seek first his righteousness. Seek first this ability to live in unity and and understand the goodness of God. And when we decide to keep our eyes on God, it'll directly impact how we choose, how we look at, and how we treat the people around us. I know that it's hard to think this way, but it is so important for us. Jesus himself prioritized his relationship with the Father more than anything else, and it impacted every relationship that he had. Let's just look at how Jesus did this when it comes to the topic of friends, because he didn't get married, so we can't look at it in the context of marriage, but the Apostle Paul, for uh, I love how he takes the teachings of Jesus and will apply them to the uh, marriage concept. But Jesus chose his friends. Did you know that? He chose who, was, who he was going to hang out with. And how did seeking God first and seeking his kingdom and his righteousness impact that? When he started his ministry, uh, we're soaping, and soaping is the way that we read scripture together at Crossbridge, a chapter a day. As we're reading about the story of Jesus right now, this guy is followed by everyone. Everyone wants to be around Jesus. And there came a point when he had to decide, who do I want to spend the most time with? Who am I going to invest in? Because I can't give everyone all my time. That's just not realistic. So instead of saying to everybody, okay, I need a list of your experiences. I would like to know your family history. I'd like to know what skills and resources you bring to the table for my ministry. I would like all of that. Come on. Dr. Luke, when he writes uh, the biography of Jesus, he gets so detailed. And he tells us, how Jesus started the process of deciding his friends. In chapter 6, verse 12, it tells us that one day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Do you see what Jesus did there? He prioritized his relationship with God. God, if I'm going to make some moves here with friends, I need to know what you think first. I need to know what you want first. And I believe that that God cares about this in our life. God cares about who we're hanging out with. And what happens is Jesus comes down the mountain. He's got clarity. He knows where he's going. He's like, "This this is the goal. This is the mission. This is your kingdom, your righteousness. And so then he chooses 12 guys from that huge crowd to follow. And what's great is all of the guys that he chooses are completely different. He wasn't looking for a specific type of skill or resource. They had different backgrounds, different passions, different experiences, but there was one thing that they did all have in common. They knew their values were to follow Christ, commit to his teachings, to seek God, his kingdom, and his righteousness. They wanted to learn from Jesus When we are deciding on friends, it is crucial that we look for people who have the same values. When we are choosing the people closest to us, it is important that we choose people who have the same values as we do. And last week we talked about we celebrate what we value, right? You can see this so clearly in the passage that Brianna read for us from John chapter 11. We we spent some time with Jesus in this chapter this week. In this passage, right where where Brianna read first, Jesus had just been in Jerusalem 
There's an uproar, and, and in that uproar in Jerusalem, Jesus is almost killed. And so Jesus leaves that region. He goes up to a, a different area, and he's kind of like, all right, I'm going to go miles away, let things simmer down in Jerusalem because it's kind of bad. I, I don't like being almost killed every time I walk in there. But this one was worse than normal. Now, sure enough, in a city very close to Jerusalem, one of his best friends gets sick. This, this man named Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, are so close to Jesus. And in the town that they live of Bethany, it's, it's within a mile or so, a couple miles of Jerusalem. Like it's, it's a day's walk. You know the people who are there. And while Jesus is far off from this town, he gets news that Lazarus is sick. And he says to his disciples, like, guys, I... We can't go back yet. And he gives it two days to let it settle. And after two days, and in those two days, Lazarus dies. He gets news of that. This is the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. You ready? Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Why would they object? Because he was just almost killed, right? Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? This is a good sign of good friends, right? They're going to try to keep you out of trouble. That's a good thing here. But you have to understand that great friends and good friends don't always agree. Never put yourself in an echo chamber of people who only agree with what you agree with. If you only hear, that's a good idea, and yes, from the people who are closest to you, they're not always telling you the truth because you and I make bad decisions, amen? We do. We need people to tell us that. That's what real love looks like. And so his best friends here are pushing back on him. Jesus, you, you do remember, last time you were there, stones in hands, wanting to kill you. If you want to see God's kingdom and his righteousness progress here, like you don't want to go back there. You know what happened. And then if you jump down to verse 11, Jesus replies, he said, then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I'm going to go wake him up. His disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get soon, or he'll, he will soon get better. They thought that Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. Again, I love the disciples. Oh, I love these guys. Their logic, they trust Jesus, right? They're listening intently to what he says, and, and you just said he was sleeping. If he's sleeping, why are you going to go mess with him? Just let him rest. Don't mess with this. And just Jesus, so awesome, just gets really blunt with them. So he told them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, uh, you said sleeping. Just say that to begin with, right? Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin. Uh, real quick, what do we nickname Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Here he's just nicknamed a twin. We gave him a new nickname because Thomas the twin says to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Does this sound like a doubter to you? I, I, I hated the question in our soap guide that said, could you imagine if your whole life was defined by one mistake that you made in life? By one moment where Thomas doubted and everybody calls him doubting Thomas, but here... That does not sound like a doubter to me. I know he gets a bad rap, but man, Thomas to me seems like a ride or die kind of guy. Like this is a friend where you're like, we're going to go do this. And like, yeah, let's go. 
Jesus, you, you, you just almost got stoned. All the disciples are like, I can't do this. And Jesus is like, listen, he's asleep. Well, then let him rest. No, no, he's dead. Oh, but I'm going. I'm kind of glad I'm here because when I go back, oh, you're about to see it. It's, it's going to be something you've never seen. And Thomas is not waiting on, eh. Jesus, if you were going, you could die. So you know what I say? Let's go, ride or die. Let's go die with Jesus. This is amazing to me. These types of friends are so hard to find. Jesus didn't pick them out of a hat, did he? No, he didn't just choose them because they were the popular ones or the richest ones or the funniest ones. He prayed about who he wanted to surround himself with. He spent time with them. He invested in them. He trusted them. And with similar values, they invested in each other because friendships are never going to be one-sided. Never. There has to be trust. There has to be transparency. There has to be mutual support. And, and because of this, it is so clear to me that friendships impact your direction. Friendships will impact your direction. If you want to right now know what direction you are headed in life, look at where the people around you are going. Okay? Look at the people around you. What direction are they headed? You are headed that way. If you hang out with fitness people, guess what? You're going to start getting into fitness. If you hang out with gamers, you're going to start gaming. If you hang, if you're the bookish type and, and you're into that, right, you probably hang out with other bookish types and share books that you like and get all dorky about it. I just did that this morning and I love it. If there's a specific type of music that your friends listen to, guess what you might start listening to? That type of music. It doesn't matter if they're sports junkies, workaholics, outdoorsy type people, social drinkers. I will tell you this, that we become the average of our friends. We become the average of our friends. Look around and think, oh, okay, this is what I'm cool with? Because it's impossible to spend any significant amount of time with someone and not have them influence you. You, you just cannot spend a lot of time with someone and think, this will have no effect on me. I'll be the influencer. Maybe. But you'll become an average. Over time, our interests, our habits, our behaviors, they tend to blend with the people who are around us. And this is so true in our spiritual lives as well. If your closest friends, the ones that you have so tight to you, are going after Jesus and they carry his values, guess what you will find yourself doing? Going after Jesus and claiming his values. If your closest friends could care less about spirituality and Jesus' values, guess where you will find yourself going? You are setting and settle, you're settling on your spiritual journey and setting it on coast or downhill. You will not increase in your faith by surrounding your closest friends who are not followers of Jesus. Does this mean you should not be friends with people who aren't followers of Jesus? No. Oh my gosh, there's nothing worse than a Christian who knows no one who's not a Christian. Oh, oh, it's toxic. It's horrible. We forget and we become judgmental by staying plugged into the people who are around us who don't know Jesus. We remember the goodness of his grace and want for nothing more than them to discover the goodness of Jesus. But if these are the closest people to us, they will not celebrate the values that Christ has. Who you surround yourself with is who you are becoming. That's why this decision is so important. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul writes this in a letter to the church in Corinth. 
He says to them in chapter 15, do not be misled. Bad company, and when he says bad there, the word is evil. Okay, so it's evil. Evil company corrupts good character, and that word corrupts is really destroys. Evil company destroys good character. Come back to your senses, he says to them, as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some of you who are ignorant of God, and they say this to your shame. How many of us can look back over our lives to the friends that we had and see a horrible impact that it had on us? Maybe it was that one person that we became friends with that knocked us off the rails, and it was like, oh, that was a horrible choice of friends. Now, I'd hate to admit this, but I will. There was a season when I was that person that my influence on the people around me derailed them. It did not point them towards Christ. Now, if, if you're here, teens, let me talk to you for just a second, okay? Um, your parents probably don't want me to tell you this, but uh, here's the truth. You ready? They have made some horrific decisions in their life. <laughs> okay, good. So you know this. Um, especially when it came to some of the friends that they picked, they made less than stellar decisions. And here's what happened to them. Their parents told them, I don't like when you hang out with that person. It's not good for you. That their parents told them, I don't like those friends. And they didn't really listen. So they stayed with some of those friends and they made some horrible choices. And then as they started to grow up and they realized these were horrible choices, they went, oh my gosh, I hope my kids never go down that pathway. I don't want them to do this. And now they're doing the very same thing to you. Maybe they're feeling a little bit sketchy about some of your friends. One or two of the people that you hang around with going, mm-mm, you think they're awesome. You think they're great, but your parents don't like them. I'm going to make a request of you. Instead of ignoring your parents, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor and make it as awkward as you can for them, Okay. Parents, if you don't like this, you can email me at jimmy at idontcare.com, okay? Straight up ask them if they had friends like this growing up that pushed them to make bad decisions. What is it about this person that makes you so uncomfortable? Were there decisions that you made in your life that it's rubbing up against you? Because if they don't like something, they're seeing something. Usually that's a sign that they struggled in some area. And parents, caregivers, can I beg you be okay with your mistakes with your kids? They're going to learn from that. You are not perfect. They know it. Stop pretending it. The best way that they're going to learn about the friends to pick are not when you decide, like, I'm going to just point you to the right people. They need to know the mistakes that you made. We try to live these perfect lives in front of our kids. We all make horrible decisions. Age appropriately share why you care about that. They know you're a failure too. We all are. That's the goodness of grace is that God redeems things. And if you're looking at their friends and you don't like them, but then you look at your friends and think, well, they're not that different. Don't tell your kids not to hang out with them because the people that you hang out with are influencing you. You can't tell them to do something you're not doing. So you better kind of pick it up here. Who are you surrounding yourself with? We can't teach our kids something we don't practice. I think our kids are going to learn more from our mistakes than our commands. We need to pick good friends. So when it comes to deciding who's going to be your closest friend, here, very simply, are just some quick, crucial questions you can ask. Will this person encourage or discourage my faith in Jesus? 
right? That's a huge question. There is no in-between in this question, all right? If the answer isn't yes, the answer is no. Another question is, do they have similar values? This matters. Is this the type of person I want to be like? Will they celebrate or compete with me? And there's nothing, I mean, I understand some good competition and friendships. But there's nothing worse than being friends with someone who anytime something good happens in your life, they have to one-up you. Anytime something bad happens, they can't even listen because something worse is happening to them. They'll compete for the better or for the worse. We don't need friends like this. We need friends who celebrate. Remember, you could be friends with all sorts of people, and you should be, but when it comes to deciding who our closest friends are going to be, our faith should be our starting point if you follow Jesus. So that's the bottom line here. So let's turn our attention to marriage real quick, okay? Our attention to marriage. Um, when we touch on marriage relationships, uh, for those who are here today, you're not married. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Take notes, okay? This is your time to plan ahead. This is your time to, to be thinking out, this is what I desire. If you're here and you were divorced, uh, listen, this is a great time where you're probably resetting, you're rethinking, like, what do I really want to redo when I move forward? You know this already. This matters for the future of many of us. And I... I Man, I know not every guy talks about this when they're growing up, but for me, I was the kid who I really, I did want to be married when I was young. Not married young, but like I always looked forward to marriage and I looked forward to being a dad. These were things that I thought, ah, oh, I would love to do this. So, you know, sometimes if I had a crush on someone and I would wonder, what would it be like to be married to them? Now, if 11 to 13-year-old Pastor Jimmy got his way and I got to decide who I was going to marry, it was like a 50-50 toss-up. It was really hard. It was either... Kelly Kapowski. <sighs> I mean, come on. Saved by the bell. This is prime time. Or it was Topanga Lawrence. Man, I mean, Boy Meets World. This is, this is a tough decision, isn't it? This is something. Oh, I hear that. Hallelujah. If you're in that age range where you know those shows growing up, you're like, oh, it didn't get any better than this. It's like, oh my gosh. And, and when I look back on those years in my life, it's easy to think, you know, what was I looking for there? Marriage was about getting what I wanted out of life. It was about looking at this relationship and what would make me happy. And either of them, I thought this would make me happy. Can I tell you, I think that this might be the biggest lie that our culture sells us about marriage. That if you find the right man or woman or partner there, that you are going to be happy for the rest of your life. I don't mean to burst your bubble, but marriage is not about your happiness. It's not about your happiness. It's about glorifying God. That's why he gave us the gift of marriage. Marriage is the divine joining of two very imperfect people. And in that union, God is glorified, and it's a picture of his relationship with the church. But too often, just like most other relationships, we put what we desire and what we want as the center of our relationship, and that's why we make the decisions that we make about who we marry. Now, remember what we talked about right up front, that our relationship with God is more important than our relationship with people. This is true in our marriage. And when you begin to look to find a spouse and 
you find in them and look in them for what only God can provide, you are setting yourself and them up for a disaster. Just look back at the first marriage in the Bible. Do you know what we see? We see that Adam had a relationship with God. And then when he could not find something comparable for him, a partner, what God did is he, he was like divine anesthetic and he created woman. And there's no defining time for how long he spent time with Eve. And so you know what? Eve had a relationship with God. She knew his voice. And two people that God has created came together. And God gave them to each other. And it was not to find completeness. It was to find unity. I think too many marriages start with us looking for someone to complete us, to make us whole. I'm going to tell you a person will never do that for you. They will never complete you. They will never make you whole. Only God can do that in your life. And that is why we have to prioritize our relationship with him. But we mess this up in our culture all the time. We want completeness. We want completeness. And, and we, when someone makes us feel so good, or they make me so happy, we are all in. I mean, really, who cares if we have different values? Who cares if we have different goals and different beliefs? They make me feel good about me. They make me like me. And, and, and that's what love looks like, doesn't it? That's what love is. No, that's not what love looks like. And that's not what love is. Love is not about getting what you want. It's not about feeling butterflies all the time. But if that's what you think love looks like, the moment those things don't happen in your marriage, you're ready to toss it. You're ready to be done. If I'm not happy, then this isn't working. We must not be in love anymore. When we put our needs and our desires at the center of our marriages, we are bound to be disappointed. And we are bound to be disappointed in us and that other person. Let me tell you, the biblical picture of marriage starts at a very, very different place. The Apostle Paul, like I said, he takes the teachings of Jesus, he applies them and helps the church understand how these work out in the church. And he writes a letter to this amazing little church in Ephesus. And they're trying to figure out how do we apply this to marriages and families. And he says, let me give you some advice. And he says, this is going to be for your families. This is going to be the starting place for everything. And he's going to talk about husbands and wives. But we don't even need to get into that because in Ephesians 5.21, this is what he says. He says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't think I need to read any further. A biblical perspective on marriage is not about getting what you want. It's about mutual submission. It's not about your happiness. But I believe God's given us marriage and it is a great gift. I love my marriage after 20 years. But it's not about that. It's about mutual submission. Submit to one another, not because you have nothing better to do. It's not about waving a white flag of submitting and saying, I give up, I give up. It doesn't mean you're giving up on what you want or desire. No, that's not it at all. It doesn't mean complete surrender where everything you want goes and I get nothing out of this. No, no, no. Those aren't mutually submissive relationships. They're really toxic. And if we all live that way, where it's like, nothing I want matters, everything that you want. Could you ask your spouse if 
you want to go out for dinner, what do you feel like? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to submit to what you want. No, I'm going to submit to what you want. You would starve. You would never go out to eat. You would never eat. And you'd be like, what happened? We died. We mutually submitted to each other. Right? No. No, mutual submission is silly. Uh, you know, if you know that your partner, your spouse likes Chinese food, mutual submission is, hey, which of these three Chinese places do you want to eat at tonight? Would you rather this Thai place, this Vietnamese place, or this, you know, gener generic Chinese place? Which would you, because I can eat at any of them. Oh, well, thanks. You may feel like Italian that night, but submitting to what they want, give them options. Have some fun with this. They may do this back. I still go back all the time to a message that I, I heard and I preached here at Crossbridge years ago. The best way to decide to live your life in mutual submission can actually be demonstrated by instead of asking, um, okay, what do I need from you today? What do I need from you? The question we ask is, what can I do to serve you? This is what mutual submission looks like. What can I do to serve you? So if you're already married here today, deciding who you're going to marry is already done. You can't change that. But the best decision that you can make every day moving forward is to ask this question in your marriage. Ask this question every day in your marriage. I know that by thinking this way, it's so much fun to be able to look and ask, how can I serve Eileen? And, you know, it's silly, but I, I, when I travel and I go to different places, I love walking the airport looking for, like, super old couples in the airport who still hold hands, and I'll, like, low-key stalk them, take my phone out, take pictures, and then send it to Eileen and go, I cannot wait to grow old with you, right? I cannot wait to grow old with you. And at a stage right now where love is blossoming, where happiness is part of our home, we still hold hands, but the question is, how do we get to that place where we are old and there's some weird guy taking pictures of us? How do you get to that place? You get to that place by asking that question over and over. What can I do to serve you? What can I do to make sure that you are taken care of, that you are loved, that I can mutually submit to you, not because I have nothing better to do, but because I love Christ so much and I know how much he loves you and I just want to give that and demonstrate that to you. Oh, I love you. I want that stage of our life to be filled with joy to be filled with memories that we cherish, not anger and fights that we remember. But this means we have to think about each other and the end. And, and this, I know, applies to people who are married, but I also think if you're thinking about getting married, you really need to have that end goal in mind. What is it that, that you want in a spouse? You, I'm begging you, be selective in who you consider for a spouse. Don't settle. Do not settle and be like, ah. have values and worths. If you are a follower of Jesus, can I just beg you this morning, beg you, do not settle for someone who does not follow Jesus as well. This will make marriage harder. It doesn't mean it can't work. I would never say that. But in that same letter where Paul says, you know, hey, uh, bad company corrupts good character, there's another portion of it. He says, when you have people who are not on the same page with Jesus, it's going to make marriage harder. It's going to be difficult because your values are so different. Do not settle in this area. I know that people have all these stories about missionary dating. You know missionary dating? You know, uh, they don't know Jesus, so if I start dating them, then maybe they'll come to know Jesus. 
very rarely is that an effective evangelism strategy, okay? And if you think it's an effective evangelism strategy, you will probably catch a very different nickname from dating all of those people to lead them to Jesus. Probably not the best representation of Jesus there. They don't usually end well. There's usually a, a lot of compromises, a lot of settling, and if they end in marriage, it's just complicated. Do me a favor. Don't treat dating like an excuse to hook up with each other. It's not worth it. It's not. I'm amazed how many dating and marriage relationships they're driven by lust, infatuation, sexual desire. If this is why you're in a relationship with somebody, your values and your priorities are just dead wrong. I think we spend more time in our culture on what tattoo we're gonna get than on what spouse we're gonna marry. Both are lifelong decisions, and you can cover up a bad tattoo, but a bad marriage is going to impact the rest of your life and your family. And I don't believe it has to be this way. So, listen, if you are married right now, are you investing in your own relationship with God first? Are you prioritizing him before your spouse? If you're not in that place, are you prioritizing? If you're not married, are you prioritizing God so that you know that when you are interested in someone or they're interested in you, that the values align and you go, this might work. This might work because you know the deal breakers right off the bat for you. Do you know those things? Don't settle on them. If you're here and you're divorced, listen, I know that there's pain in your story. I get it. I have seen and walked with so many in this place, but do not lose hope. Do not lose hope. If this is a desire that you think is there, that, that God has put into your life, have you sought God out in this season of pain? Because if whatever was the problem that led to this place is not addressed by God, it's not going to be fixed by another person. I'll tell you that. We start with our relationships with God. And I will tell you, if you're here and you're single and you're like, I would love to be married, I'm just not there. Okay, let's keep praying. But there are some who you are single and you don't want to be married. And the church never really talks about singleness as a choice to pursue Jesus. And I want to say this is an admirable, God-honoring choice. And the church needs to stop, stop shaming people for choosing a life of singleness to dedicate themselves straight to God first and be free to go and do whatever he wants from them. That is a calling to be celebrated, not shamed. And so if you have ever felt that, even if you have ever felt that at Crossbridge, I want to ask for your forgiveness and say that is not right the way that we should be doing that. But I beg you, you'll only know that. I beg you to spend time with Jesus to know if that's what he wants from you or not. Too many of us are looking for someone to complete us, and that's not what marriage is about. And so the same questions that we asked about deciding friends, I think need to be asked about deciding our futures with someone that we're going to marry is, is this person going to encourage or discourage my faith? Again, there's no in-between here. It's yes or no. If you're married, can I just ask you, how would your spouse answer that about you now? I'll let you sit on that. Do they have similar values than you? As you. If you're married, you have to find these out, right? If you don't know anymore, don't grow apart. What do you celebrate well together? Are your eyes looking to celebrate the same things? And then will they celebrate or compete with me? 
do not one-up your spouse. Do not one-up your spouse. If they get a promotion, you celebrate. If they get whatever is going on in their life, you celebrate. When they have that horrible day, do not one-up them with why your day was worse. We need to celebrate, care for, walk with, love our spouses. And you already know the answer to this, and you probably cannot control what your spouse does, but you can control what you do. So if you find yourself as uber competitive, yes, amen, I hear that. Stop competing with your spouse. Stop it. No one wins. No one wins. You can ask the Lord to make you the best cheerleader ever for them, though. I have found myself in that season right now, and it is so awesome. But I want to tell you there's hope today as we close. There's hope. If you're sitting here today and and you've probably been thinking, man, I, I wish I didn't choose those friends. God can redeem those things. That's the goodness of the gospel of Jesus. Amen? He allows us... To, to walk through pain and says, it's not wasted. I could redeem that. Maybe you've been in relationships where you've made far less uh, good decisions than bad decisions, and you're thinking, I, but I carry all that, and I don't want any of that. Listen, God can redeem those things. We're not going to let the enemy shame us into thinking we're not worthy for another relationship. We're not worthy for, for a, a healthy, God-honoring marriage. Who's going to want to submit to someone like me? No one. You know. Uh, listen, there's so many things that come into play here, but if we are not locked into where Jesus is, then we're not going to be able to love those around us. And how our relationship with God is is going to impact every person who's around us. I think that's why Jesus gave us the gift of communion to bring us back to remembering the cross every single time we gather, that it's at that cross that Jesus demonstrated. He said, I would be willing to submit my life as a sacrifice for your relationship with God. Does it get any better than that? And when we elevate the cross of Christ, like it says in 1 Corinthians, when we take communion and elevate the cross of Christ, we are remembering that we're called to the same sort of submission and sacrifice with the people around us that we choose as friends. And and I'm telling you, I know for some of you right now, you're so uncomfortable because you're like, but I like my friends. I'm not saying you have to ditch everybody and that's it, go hermit up. You're meant to be in relationship. But you need to be very careful, very careful about the people that are closest to you. Have you actually ever prayed about who's your friend? Jesus did. And he surrounded himself with 12, and at that supper, he celebrated them. And even Jesus had one out of 12. Pointed him to his death. So are you going to be 100% on your choices? Nah. But Jesus knew who he was choosing. Can I tell you that he's chosen you? loves you and today if you find yourself in that funky spot i want to ask that if you feel like you need prayer to lock into i need to prioritize jesus because these are areas that i have compromised and i need to make this right sometimes it takes courage can we just pray for you after service you after we take communion come and and just write into our prayer we will just pray over you and ask god to give you courage to maybe make hard decisions about some friends, hard decisions about a a, a romantic relationship. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it is always worth it when Christ is the center. It's always worth it.